Lovely to be here, and uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity that New Horizons have given me. I don't know whether you heard about the man who went to see his psychiatrist, and he said, the problem is, there are monsters under the bed, and I can't sleep at night. And I'm really, really depressed, and I'm feeling very down indeed. So the psychiatrist saw him, and he saw him several times, every week for a while, uh, up to six months. But unfortunately, there was no progress made. He was still not sleeping. He was still extremely depressed, and he got no better at all. So finally, they came to an agreement that they'd have to stop the sessions because the monsters were still under the bed, He's still not sleeping and not getting any better. Anyway, the psychiatrist met him in a local shop just a few weeks later, and he seemed fine. He said, are you sleeping well? Yes, no problem. Are you eating well? Yes, no problem. How's your mood? Oh, I'm absolutely fine. So the psychiatrist asked him, well, did you see anybody? Oh, he said, yes, I did. I saw a behavioral therapist. How many times did you see him? Oh, just once. And he cured you? Yes, no problem. Oh, what did he do? Well, he just said, the answer's simple, just chop the legs off the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, just a little bit of lightness as we start this session. Um, Depression and the Christian. I am so grateful that the Word of God is so open about the difficulties that people had. We read about real people and real problems. We read about people as they're doing extremely well, but we also read about people when they are really, really struggling. And I'm so glad that in the Word of God we have the detailed um, description of their lives so that we see their struggles and their pains and their difficulties as well as their successes. And we don't have to go far into the Word of God before we actually find in the Old Testament four people who I just want to mention briefly who really, really went through very, very difficult times. And the first of those was Job. And I'm just going to read one or two verses that connect us in to these characters. So the first one is Job in chapter 3, where Job calls out in verse 3, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived. And later on in verse 20 it says, Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure. So here we see Job, a great man of God, who's basically saying at this point in his life, he wishes he'd never been born, and he wishes he could die. Oh dear. What about other people in the Old Testament? The great prophet Elijah, we read of in 1 Kings chapter 19, and this is what Elijah says. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, verse 3 of chapter 19, 1 Kings. Then he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So here we have the great prophet Elijah also saying, life is not going well. I've had enough. I want to die. Hmm. A third one is the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah in chapter 20 basically says this in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 14 he says cursed be the day I was born may the day my mother bore me not be blessed cursed be the man who brought my father news who made him very glad saying a child is born to you a son so there we have Jeremiah in the pits of depression saying again he wished he had not been born And then in the fourth example, uh, King David, and there's several psalms that refer to this, but I'm just going to refer now to Psalm 32, where David says this in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And there will be other verses too from David's experience where he clearly comes out with uh, strong symptoms of depression. Here he says, my bones wasted away, and he was groaning all the day long. So we have four biblical examples, and there are others too we could have referred to, where people get extremely low and extremely down. Can we say they all suffered from clinical depression well probably not exactly I'll go through what clinical depression is a little bit later on we probably can't be accurate and say exactly that because we don't have sufficient information but from the information we have it seems extremely likely that these people actually did go through these very very difficult times And then we might ask the question, well, what was going on in their lives to cause them such difficulties? Why was it that they were in such a difficult situation? And what we find out is that there are four entirely different scenarios. They're not the same. And you see, that is true of depression. People can present with depression... But there can be all kinds of reasons behind it. One of the great difficulties we've had sometimes in church life is that people tell people, if you're depressed, then actually there must be something wrong with you spiritually. And you better get yourself sorted out. That actually doesn't really help. All it does is load guilt on top of the depression. Can a problem be spiritual? Yes, it can. But is it always spiritual? By no means. 
And certainly it's not all to do with guilt and failure, which some preachers might have you believe. So as we look at these four characters, we can just examine from their lives what exactly was going on to have brought them to this extremely low phase in their lives. Well, with Job, if you read the first chapter of Job, you can clearly see that Job was going through a terrible, terrible time. Basically, he lost everything, almost everything, that was vital to his life. He lost all his possessions, all his herds, all his flocks. He lost his children. His wife turned against him. And then his health went and he was sitting on the ground, scratching himself with a bit of broken pottery. And you might say, well, what has happened here? Well, essentially, Job has lost pretty well everything that was important to him, except his life and his faith in God. And really, he couldn't understand at this point in time what is going on. And you see, we live in a hurt and broken world and we cannot avoid things going wrong in our lives. Now, you may say some have more things going wrong than others, granted. But still, things go wrong. And sometimes in our lives, we lose things that are extremely precious to us and we don't always understand why. I've had people coming into hospital, for example, who've lost their spouse and they cannot understand what's going on and they're they're grieving so badly and it's not just grief, they're actually suicidal with it, which is why they need hospital admission. You see, loss, severe loss, and also failure to understand can lie behind depression. So that was Job's situation. But when we move on to Elijah, we find an entirely different scenario. With Elijah, you see, what had happened in his life was this. That he had been mightily used of God, but also he'd lived quite a lonely existence. You see, what had happened with him was that he had spent three years by a brook And then out of the country for a further period. And basically he had lived a lonely existence. And then God called upon him at a particular point in time to confront all the false prophets that Queen Jezebel had brought into the country. And you remember the tremendous contest that was on Mount Carmel where Elijah stood alone against all these false prophets and he called down fire from heaven. The false prophets called down fire. Nothing happened all day. Elijah called out once and the sacrifice and the altar and the water were all consumed. And then he had the problem of dealing with all the false prophets, which he did. And then he went to the top of the mountain and prayed. And you remember it was extremely intense prayer because what was he praying? He was praying now that there would be rain because the evil had been sorted out. And so there's no reason now why rain shouldn't come, which there had not been for three and a half years. So he prayed for the rain. You remember he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed seven times until a little rain cloud appeared like a man's son. And what did he do then? 
Well, he gathered up his clothing and he ran 17 miles in front of King Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel in the pouring rain. I couldn't do that. I don't know whether you could. I certainly couldn't these days. So, again, terrific physical energy. And then this Queen Jezebel said, Elijah, I'm going to get you today. Today you're finished. You're dead meat. I'm going to get you. You're going to be dead. What did Elijah do? He ran for his life out into the wilderness and he collapsed. Absolutely collapsed under a tree. What was going on? Well, physical exhaustion, certainly. Mental exhaustion, probably. Spiritual exhaustion, probably. Burning the candle at both ends, totally exhausted. You know, if you burn the candle at both ends and there are physical things in your life as well, etc., 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 you might get depressed. And there are physical causes of depression. Okay. What about King David? King David, you see, his situation was entirely different again. What was David's problem? Well, you tell me, but he'd basically ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba. He'd murdered her husband, Uriah. And it seems in those four Psalms I've put up there that there is a bit of a sequence going on. And it seems likely, very likely to me, that King David's depression, which certainly comes out, was related to his basically sin, adultery and murder. Can sin be related to depression? Yes, it can. Can evil habits be related to depression? Yes, they can. But it's not all that problem, you see. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was somebody who was called upon God, by God, to basically give a last chance, as it were, to the people before they went into exile. And you find that actually Jeremiah faced rejection by everybody. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his villagers. He was rejected by the priests. He was rejected by his other prophets. He was rejected by the king and court. Nobody basically accepted his message. And essentially he went through utter and total rejection. Well, you see, there are people around like that. Sometimes those in particular in positions of leadership or responsibility can face those great difficulties in their lives. They go through times like that when they really, really struggle with those kinds of feelings of rejection. Can that be related to depression? Yes, it can. And so here we have in the biblical record, I feel, four people who basically went through very, very difficult times, probably related to depression. We can't say definitely it was clinical depression, but we can be fairly sure that some of that was going on. And as they go through those times, they really, really struggle. And they come up with those features of depression. But there are four different causes behind it. One, it's tremendous loss. The other, it's mainly physical. Another, it's probably sin. And the fourth one may be entire rejection by everybody else. And you see, 
depression is something that is not uncommon. And we'll come on to that again in a moment. But you see, even when we go through the pages of Christian history as well, we do find that people have really, really struggled with depression. We find, for example, one character who's fairly well known, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preacher. There came a day in his life when basically he was preaching in a large public place and there was huge crowds outside. And essentially in that place, a few people, a few bad lads as it were, they started crying (laughs) out, fire, fire, fire. And people were killed in the melee that ensued. Spurgeon, nearly, nearly finished Spurgeon. He really couldn't cope with it. And there were periods in his life where he got extremely depressed. And he wrote a book saying, when a preacher is downcast, looking at some of the reasons he could point out himself for his own depression. But still, God mightily used him. And thousands would come to hear him. And God really blessed him. Can God bless a person who's depressed, struggling? Yes, certainly. Another example we might look at is the example of the uh, missionary who went by the name of Adoniram Judson. And Adoniram Judson went out to, uh, basically, to Burma, Myanmar now. He went out to Burma in the early 19th century and he struggled for several years before he saw any converts. And then, basically, Burma and England were tied up in a war situation. And during that war, he was desperately ill-treated. He was in a cell with his shoulders on the ground and his feet hoisted up to a pole in the middle with vermin running around, terrible. And nobody knew who would be the next one who would be taken out and shot. Awful, awful situation. And then in the aftermath of that war, basically he was used as an interpreter to try and solve the difficulties ensuing in the aftermath of the war. And in that situation, he was separated from his wife and young child. And as he was separated for quite a long time, actually his wife and young child, they both died. And Judson could not forgive himself for not being with them when they had needed him most. What did he do? Well, he tried to bury himself in his work. And he worked and worked and worked and worked at his Bible translation. But, you know, you can't deal with grief and pain that way. You have to somehow let it out. And, of course, he didn't. He tried to bury it. And then what did he do? Well, actually, he went out into the jungle and he dug a grave for himself and he wandered around that grave in a suicidal state for several days. Wow. How low can you get? And then what happened was he did have some fellow missionaries and basically they prayed for him night and day. They poured out their hearts in prayer for Judson. And as they prayed for him, he gradually got better. But then something absolutely remarkable happened. 
before when he'd been preaching only a few people had responded to the gospel now when he preached thousands thousands came to Christ so was his depression wasted no was his depression sent by God I don't believe so does God do nasty things to people like that I don't believe so but on the other hand as he came through that depression as somehow he kept his eyes on God even though there came there were times in his depression he couldn't feel God he couldn't seem to know God's presence he still kept his eyes on God and when he finally came through God had done something in his life that was immensely powerful you see God can use even the depression and the difficulties in our lives what I want to do now is just move on having looked at the, the Christian side of things just a little bit to look at some of the clinical features of depression just you know, so you'll be aware of what we're talking about for example this is what we talk about when we talk about depression this is what I look for in my patients when I'm trying to work out are they clinically depressed and I will often ask two questions I will, the first question I will ask is you know are you still enjoying things? In the last two weeks, are you, have you been enjoying life at all? And basically, the person who's depressed will usually be miserable pretty well all the time, every day, all day long, for at least a couple of weeks. There'll be no sense of enjoyment of things. There'll be no sense of wanting to do things. There'll be no sense of uh, interest in things. There'll be that sense of of just feeling low and down and no real interest and pleasure in things. Those are two questions I would ask about their enjoyment generally and about whether they're just uh, involved in activities or whether they're miserable. And then you'll see there's a list of other symptoms that we have there. Um, unable to sleep properly, usual loss of weight, occasionally gaining weight, agitated or very slowed down, no energy, tired all the time, feeling worthless or guilty, unable to concentrate, recurrent death, thoughts of death or suicide. All of those are going to be common. But in the diagnosis we'd say you've got to have one or two plus at least four of the others for most or nearly all of the time. Now, there are slightly different ways of diagnosis. But if I see that picture, and you can often recognise that picture, you'll say that person is clinically depressed. It's not just a matter of going through one or two days of feeling a little bit low or down. No, that's not true clinical depression. But when you've got that pervasive sense of lowness, that loss of interest, together with the usually loss of sleep, loss of poor, poor weight and those other features, you're dealing with what we would say is a clinical depression. Now, at any one time, you'd say between 2 or 3% of the population have that illness. And so it's quite a common feature. It means there's probably two or three people in this room who are depressed. Or maybe more, I don't know. Uh, so those are, those are, that's what we look for when we're looking for depression. Now I know there are different kinds, but we don't have time to go into all the kinds in this seminar today. But there are different kinds of depression. We can call it, talk about bipolar depression as well as unipolar depression. I don't really have the time to go into that today fully. If you want to ask me a question about that later, that's fine. 
Now we might say, well, what leads to depression? Well, obviously, we looked at the biblical account. And again, here, I'm not going to give you an absolutely full list. But when you look at some of these things, you can say, yes, these are likely to be factors that can be involved in depression. Perhaps it's misleading to say these lead to depression, more to say these are factors involved in depression. So, for example, there are childhood factors. For example, if you, we do know that depression is more common in some families than in others. I'm forgetting to put these forward now for just a minute. Okay, we're talking about childhood things. So, you know, depression is commoner in some families than others. Childhood experience, you know, loss of mother or absence of parents is a factor. Experience of physical or sexual abuse, overprotective or non-caring parents, and personality. Those prone to anxiety and perfectionism may be at greater risk of depression. Now, what I'm saying in those factors in childhood is I'm not saying that if you've got these things, you're going to get depressed. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that if these things did go on in your childhood, you may have a slightly higher risk of getting depression. For example, if some, a close relative in your family has depression, then you're a bit more likely to have depression yourself. So there are those factors in childhood. And then we've also thought about what factors also uh, go on in terms of loss because you see depression often follows a period of loss now I want you to think of that loss in fairly wide terms we've talked about the grief the sudden grief that can happen and that's a form of loss of course that loss can be loss of health for example I've had people come into hospital whose loss has been that they have lost their eyesight or they've lost their their a walking ability through a stroke or some other cause or they've had cancer or something and that loss of their health has been projected them as it were into uh, a depressive illness so that loss can be um, also in the current in the financial situations we've had it can be loss of finances it can be your home being repossessed it can be loss of your job uh, all of those things can be happening to bring about a situation of loss so usually we'll find with depression that there are some factors from early on and some factors involving loss in the last six months or a year. can be loss of even good name. So it can be lost through other causes as well. And we think of David there. could be lost through those kinds of circumstances. So usually we'd find some of that. Now I have to say that sometimes we cannot identify it. Sometimes I'll have a person on my ward who's been very depressed and I'll have to say, I am not sure why this person is depressed. I know they're very depressed, but I can't quite put my finger on it. That can certainly happen uh, sometimes. And so those stressful events can lead us to, uh, can be obviously things that can precipitate uh, that depression. What about happen, what happens in the body with depression? Well, here we're talking about fairly severe depression. Um, there are some changes uh, in the body. Certainly, antidepressants work on two key chemicals. They work on serotonin and uh, noradrenaline, and they tend to increase 
the amounts of those chemicals at nerve endings. There's been some recent research to suggest actually with the time lag between treatment and re response that actually there's probably some changes in cell growth even in some areas in the hippocampus in the brain. That's a little bit uh, not quite certain yet, but there does seem to be some evidence that it's to do with new cell growth as well. But certainly these chemicals are involved because actually when you give the antidepressant, it will usually work on either noradrenaline or serotonin or sometimes both. Antidepressants will work in that kind of way. Some people are a bit afraid of antidepressants. I found them to be very useful drugs when given appropriately. Sometimes I think they're overprescribed, uh, but certainly for somebody who's severely depressed, you know, they can work extremely well. Hormones are also involved. Uh, cortisol is a kind of stress hormone. And it does seem that in early life, the effect of cortisol uh, on the brain and the increased stress may uh, have effects on certain areas of the brain. And then the kind of loss is a kind of trigger to those early changes that have been going on. So there is some evidence of that chemical uh, imbalance but it's when the depression is fairly severe. You don't get that in mild depression. What about helping the person with depression? You know, you find somebody in your family who is uh, severely depressed or you have a friend who is severely depressed and you want to say, how can I help that person? What can I do for them? Well, the problem with depression is people often want to isolate themselves, they want to go into themselves, and so you can be there for them, and you can be just available to them, and you can just gently encourage them. Try and, if you can, get them to talk about their difficulties and problems. If people can talk about their problems, it's usually healthy and better for them. So if you can encourage them to talk through things through and share with you, that's fine. You don't want to try and force them to do that. That would be a mistake. You can try and gently encourage them to share and talk about their difficulties. Obviously, people with depression as well will be um, often not eating properly. They'll be not sleeping properly. And so if you can gently encourage normal meals and a normal sleep pattern, that again is useful. There's very good evidence that exercise is very beneficial in kind of most forms of mental illness, but in particular with depression. And there's been a number of studies to show that actually exercise can be almost as good as antidepressants in treating depression. So, you know, going uh, and particularly exercise in groups where there's a social aspect to it as well is very, very helpful. Encourage them to remain involved in life and not to withdraw. You see, the tendency with someone with depression is to withdraw and to want to spend a lot of time by themselves. That is unhealthy. It's not a good idea to be spending too much time just entirely by yourself if you're low and down. That's not a good idea. You want to try and remain involved a bit. So if you can encourage the person to be involved and not to withdraw, then that is extremely helpful. 
I spent a lot of my uh, time as uh, in the psychiatry of old age, and I would spend a lot of time in clinics trying to persuade someone to do something <coughs> with other people. Almost it didn't matter what they did, really, so long as it was with other people and there was a social element to it, because so many people are lonely. There's an epidemic of loneliness. In fact, I put an article on my website on the epidemic of loneliness, so you can check that out. But it's a tremendous problem in this country, the loneliness, you know. So that's, um, you know, that's how you can help people. How further can we help people uh, with depression? <coughs> well, obviously, encouraging them to stay off alcohol and drugs of abuse, those will cause things to be worse. We know, for example, that those who drink heavily uh, you know, are more likely uh, to get depressed, but they're also more likely to harm themselves in the context of that depression. So obviously, trying to, to avoid alcohol and drugs of abuse. Be aware of the risk of suicide, of course. As I've mentioned before, those with severe depression may be having suicidal thoughts. It's a good idea to gently inquire about them. But then if you find somebody who is suicidal, don't try and manage it yourself. Get help. And obviously, depending on the situation, that help may need to be very urgent. Uh, you know, if someone's obviously suicidal, you don't leave them alone. You stay with them until you get help, you know. And often that help will be uh, the importance of medical assessment. Medical assessment is necessary with depression. Why? Because that medical help will be a way of assessing how deep that depression is. It'll be a way of looking at what might be the underlying factors behind that depression. It'll also be a way of coming up with a good plan as to how to effectively treat that depression. So medical assessment um, is necessary. Sometimes a doctor may be willing, a person may be willing to see a doctor related physical problem. It can be sometimes difficult to get a, a patient who is clearly depressed to see the doctor. Well, sometimes you might say, well, go and get a physical checkup. Go and get a few tests and you seem a bit run down. So that can be a way of doing them. And obviously, don't blame the person and say you shouldn't be depressed. And don't say, pull yourself together. Uh, that really doesn't help. So as I was saying there, you know, in severe depression, the person will need help from the doctor. The person will need to be in a safe place and professional help is necessary. Antidepressants and other treatments can help to restore the chemical imbalance in the brain. You know, I have seen people with given electric shock treatment who are at death's door recover. It has its place still in severe depression. We don't use it so commonly because we're aware of the dangers, but occasionally it can really, really be helpful. Um, <coughs> talking about, briefly, uh, antidepressants, I'm only going to just go into this very briefly. They usually take some time to begin to work well, at least one or two weeks. Treatment will usually need to be uh, not only to get the depression better, but you need to give them for a longer period after that to stop them relapsing. So we're talking about several months, often a year or two, on the antidepressants. As well as treating the depression to help stop it coming back. They're not addictive, but some people may suffer withdrawal effects. And they help to restore, restore the chemical imbalances in the brain. 
I don't have time to go into all the different forms of treatment, but cognitive behavior therapy uh, is very valuable. And basically, cognitive behavior therapy is saying that there's always a thought that comes before the feeling. So, you know, the cognitive behavior therapy and antidepressants are often used together. Sometimes if the depression is mild, somebody may go for cognitive behavior therapy first, but usually uh, you'll find that they're often given together in some way. But cognitive behavior therapy is looking at thinking patterns because, you see, it's very easy to think yourself into a negative state. Um, and, and so the thought comes before the feeling. The thought is, you know, that person doesn't like me. Ah, how do you feel? I don't feel so good. Okay, thought and then a feeling. And then connected to that is the, the fact that those thoughts are often unchallenged. You see, I might say to myself, that person doesn't like me. What do I do with that thought? Do I just keep it inside? Or do I examine it and say, actually, is that thought true? So examining the thoughts can be extremely helpful. And those thoughts often go unchallenged. The thoughts are generally incorrect. And if the thoughts are changed, the feeling gets better. I wish I had more time to go into that more fully. I don't. So we're going to have to leave that one there. Activity schedules can be very valuable for those with depression. I would often try and encourage people to be doing things. Some things that they'll enjoy, other things that they'll get a sense of achievement from. So I'll often encourage a person to actually begin to do something rather than doing nothing. And that process of activity scheduling can be extremely uh, valuable. I'm just going to finish this session before we have one or two questions with uh, some work that I find very interesting. And this is work by uh, Professor Patricia Casey from, the, uh, from Dublin. And there are many others who've done this very similar work. And essentially, what this work is saying is that actually those who regularly practice a religious faith actually do better. They do better as a group. Now, obviously, we've looked at biblical characters and characters from Christian history, and we've said Christians can get depressed. It's true. But as a group, what this work is saying is actually those who have basically practiced their religious faith, they generally do better than those who don't. And this work is an examination of over 300 clinical papers of those who are uh, connecting together mental health and, and, um, and, and um, religious practice. And so as a result of examining those 300 papers, she's come up with these six conclusions that the overwhelming weight of evidence so far is that being actively involved in religious participation is psychologically beneficial for individuals. Rates of depression and suicide are lower. Young people are less likely to engage in self-destructive behavior. Marriages are stronger. People live longer and people are better able to cope with bereavement. Those six conclusions. And if you kind of extend that across society, we'd say then that basically religious practice would lead to benefit to society. And I think that is a very valid extension. 
I'd like to talk more about her work, but again, we're running out of time. But it's interesting to note that. So, you know, our religious practice is actually beneficial, even though at times we may still go through some tremendously difficult and painful times in our lives. Well, really, that's all I want to say. Uh, There's a lot more I could have said, but I'm aware that we are slightly short on time, and so we need to just leave it there. But I will be happy to try and take a few questions. So if you have a few questions you want to ask me, I'll do my best to answer them in the last 15 minutes. Is that all right? Can you repeat the question, Stephen, for the microphone, just for the recording, just whenever a person asks a question? Yes, thank you, thank you. So, any questions? I'm not saying I'll be able to answer them all, but I'll do my best. Any difference between adults and children and adolescents? So, the question is, is there any difference between children and adolescents and, uh, uh, and, and adults? Well, of course, there are differences. There are bound to be, because children are in, often in a family situation, uh, and, and they're in a situation that we would say the diagnosis of depression is not going to be hugely different, but the causes of that depression, what is behind it, will be hugely different because the adolescent will be struggling with all kinds of other issues that maybe an adult isn't struggling with. So again, as we looked at depression, we said this is the clinical picture that you get of depression, but the causes of it are all kinds of causes. I'm not an expert in child and adolescent psychiatry. That's not a special specialty I know a huge <laughs> amount about. So I can't answer that in more detail. I think the clinical picture is much the same, but the cause and what lies behind it are very, very different. And the way you treat it is also going to be very different. You're, for example, you're going to be a little bit more hesitant about diving in with antidepressants in, in a lot of cases, you know. Yes. Do you see, Stephen, within the church prevalent behaviour saying that God will heal you, let's pray that God will heal you and you don't need your medication mm. anymore? The question being asked is, is there an attitude that's prevalent in the church whereby church might say, you don't need your antidepressant and God will heal you? Yes, I think that attitude is around quite commonly and it's a bit dangerous. I I always advise uh, church leaders and those involved in any kind of ministry, do not tell somebody to change their medication. That is not your job. It's the job of the doctor to tell the person to change their medication. It's not your job. If you do that and things go wrong, you are culpable. And in this culture, you might actually get sued, I imagine, if you did that. Because that would be a mistake. Don't tell people to change their medication. Leave that to the doctor. Now, the second question that arises is, does God heal people? Well, of course, God does heal people. He does heal people, and, and it can be quite remarkable. I have seen at least one person who's made an amazing recovery from depression following a time of prayer, and that can happen, and I'm sure there are others too. But, you know, I think we have to be a little bit careful. 
I certainly feel that we should be praying for people and we should be praying God's blessing on people and we can pray that God will touch them and heal them. But I think it's sometimes a mistake to tell people straight up front, you are healed, now go and whatever. Because I think, you know, only time will tell that. I think praying for healing certainly has its place. Prayer certainly has its place. But I think the, the thing is this, I believe it goes together. I think prayer... And spiritual help goes together with medical and psychiatric help. I don't think they're opposed. You see, we, we thought at one time they're opposed. It's either healing or psychiatric. No, I think the two actually go together. It's both together. It is the spiritual component, but it is also the medical and psychiatric component together. The following on from that, and it's similar to that part of that question. Sometimes people with health issues, not actually mental health issues, hold themselves, maybe say, I don't need my medication. Is there anything we can do in that situation? Mm. So the question is about people not only with mental illness, but sometimes with physical illness, saying they don't need their medication. Um, well, obviously, you know, in that situation, my advice would be you this person really ought to go and see their doctor to get a checkup and see what is actually going on because medication is not given lightly it's given for good reasons so there's you know the person in that situation should go back to their family doctor and ask for their assessment of the situation uh, now, granted, you can't force somebody to do that. You know, uh, every, everyone's an individual. You can't force someone to take medication if they don't want to. But generally, our advice in that would be go back and get a proper assessment done. Thank you. And this is more of kind of a religious dilemma than a physical one, but for people who either are already Christians and suffer with depression or for people who have suffered with depression in the past and then they are thinking about kind of becoming a Christian... Um, the whole belief that suicidal thoughts is a sin, you know, how do you really get around that for people, you know, people might think I can't be a Christian because I had depression and I had suicidal thoughts and that's a sin, like how do you kind of get, how do you get around that? Yeah, the question is around the idea of suicidal thoughts and whether suicidal thoughts are sinful and, and somebody with depression may have suicidal thoughts. Either they're a Christian already or they're thinking of becoming a Christian and that's a problem. Well, we have to recognize that suicidal thoughts are actually pretty common. The thoughts are, you know, one survey in Europe suggested that in five different countries, suicidal thoughts are between 1% and 19% of the population in those five different countries that were surveyed. It was actually further work that was done by Patricia Casey. So we know that suicidal thoughts are common. Uh, when we looked at the biblical characters, you know, Jeremiah, Elijah, and also Job, and I think we're all having suicidal thoughts. Now, what we find is that God does not condemn them, does he? You know, I, I meant to say this, but God touches those three people in a very gentle way. God, for example, uh, restores everything to Job. And Job, in the middle of his trial says you know I know my redeemer lives you know he, he rises above it but God deals gently with him and provides double for him with with uh, Elijah God gently provides food and sleep for him if you read the story God is very gentle with Elijah 
And also God is very gentle with the prophet Jeremiah. And there's a beautiful relationship developed between God and Jeremiah. So from the biblical record itself, I think we can say that God doesn't condemn people, you know, for having suicidal thoughts. And uh, God is loving and gracious and understanding. The Lord is full of compassion, you know, and he wants to be compassionate to all of us. And particularly when we're going through crises and difficulties in our lives. Yeah. Yes. Why is there such a stigma over mental health rather than physical health? I think we, I mean, I'm probably as guilty as the next, not being completely honest when I'm in public and saying, well, I had to give up my job because I had a health issue. Mm. Why is it in this country or why are, why are mental health issues, why do they cause more, so much stigma? There's, the question is related to stigma and stigma in mental illness in particular and why is there so much stigma. Studies have been done on stigma and, and it's been found that when people actually meet people with mental illness and when mental illness is explained, those two factors tend to reduce stigma. So if we want to try and reduce stigma, we need to talk more about mental illness in, in this kind of context and also in our churches. So talking about it certainly reduces that stigma. People having a chance to meet and talk with people who've got mental illness, again, that tends to reduce the stigma. But the stigma is there and, and you know, um, we have to try and our best to overcome that but certainly churches uh, taking the route of talking more about mental illness talking about more about depression and these kind of problems I think that's one way through yeah is our negative is negative thinking the cause or the effect of depression the question is is negative thinking the cause or the effect of depression you often find that things actually go both ways round so certainly some people will be thinking negatively and that negative thinking can be a factor in their depression, particularly if they think they keep those think that thinking to themselves, which is why I said sharing your, sharing your thoughts, sharing your difficulties is extremely valuable in depression. So sharing those negative problems, those negative thoughts can be very helpful. That's what you do, for example, in cognitive behavior therapy, and the therapist will help to, to look at those thoughts to see are those thoughts actually real or actually can we look at those thoughts in a different way. That would be what the cognitive therapist would do. But on the other hand, when you are, when you are suffering from a depression that may have other causes, it, the, the depression itself may, may lead you to think negatively. So I think you'd have to say it goes both ways around. Well, yes, in cognitive behavior therapy, the thought, the, the negative thought will often lead to the feeling. For example, if somebody says, you know, uh, that person doesn't like me, I will feel, I will feel um, a little bit down or, or, or that kind of thing. So the thought does come before the feeling. That is true. Or is that, do you know what, I'm trying to get right down to the base of when we have the negative thoughts or other, our friends or family have negative thoughts, is it the fact that we don't deal with them in a healthy way that, that starts the spiral? 
Yes, the, que the question is about negative thoughts again and, uh, you know, dealing with negative thoughts and how we deal with them and if we don't deal with them, is that a problem? Uh, the answer to that is this, that dealing with negative thoughts, I think, is a very, very important skill. Obviously, the Apostle Paul tells us, you know, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good report, whatever things are beautiful, think on those things. So the Apostle and, and other parts of Scripture are telling us how to think. And one of the important things as a Christian is learning to think correctly and learning to think well about things. So learning that is a useful skill and it's one we're doing all of our lives. We're learning to think clearly and well about the positive and the useful. And dealing with negative thoughts, I think, is an equally important skill. So if negative thoughts are coming along, what are you going to do with them? Are you just going to let them sit there or are you actually going to deal with them well dealing with them one way is if you're having a negative thought about some particular situation you'll often need to go and talk about that and find out what the truth and the reality is around that so one way of dealing with negative things is to actually go and talk about it on the other hand that's not always possible and so you know the psalms are full of king david pouring his heart out before the Lord and pouring out all that negativity on the Lord. And the Lord can take any amount of negativity. He does not bother by it. But after we've poured it out, we will often feel a little bit better and the Lord will begin to answer us. Yeah? Yes? I have the worry that whenever you want to introduce something for kind of young adults or, or teenagers, what age or is there a certain way it's best to kind of bring up things like eating disorder, self-harm, depression? Do you have any kind of ways it's the best way to start off those conversations without getting them to think too much about it? So the question is about eating disorders, self-harm, depression, that kind of thing in young people. How best do we start the conversation? Um, I have five daughters, okay? <laughs> and all I would say is it was never very easy, okay? Uh, so for me, as an, uh, uh, you know, my age and vintage to start off, it would be more difficult. For a young person to talk to their fellow young person about it, I would have thought that would not be so difficult. But how you actually start that conversation, I don't know. I think one of the things that that is so vital in this whole area is that our whole attitude should be loving and compassionate. You know, we must discover the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who went out of his way to draw people to himself. He was the friend of prostitutes and sinners. He was the friend of everybody. And so we need to have that same attitude of love and compassion towards the outcast, the downtrodden, the depressed, the mentally ill. And our attitude will, I think, find a way for us. As to exactly how you do it, I wouldn't be the expert there. I think we're, we're almost out of time now, so um, just like you to uh, show appreciation. <laughs> Um, perhaps I could just say the two books there, Finding the Yes in the Mess, is on the Christian suffering, and the other one, Mindful of the Light, that's on depression and mental health issues and with a spiritual angle. So feel free to have a look. And thank you for coming. It's been